So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Taking the Fear Out of Cancer. Today I have the complete delight of having in front of me a lady that I have been watching on Facebook now for some considerable time. Her name is Peggy Buchanan. And Peggy was diagnosed with her cancer back in October 2018. And it's been a fairly um, tumultuous ride, I think, <laughs> over, over the past nine or ten months. And so first of all, welcome, Peggy. And thank you so much for agreeing to being with me today. Thank you for asking me. It's lovely. Thank you. No worries. So um, just to give people a bit of a, an understanding about where you're coming from and the experience you've had thus far, do you want to share a bit about your, your, uh, your journey on this thing that people call cancer? Um, okay, dates. Uh, in 2012, um, righty started buckling and shrinking. Sorry, righty is what I call right boob and lefty is left boob. And uh, the falsies are Lola and Fifi, if that comes into the... That's beautiful. <laughs> um, Fifi is very good. She's sort of like a vicar's wife and she sits around what's left of Lefty and tells it where to go. And Lola um, covers uh, everything that once was righty and she's like the drunken aunt at a party and she's had too many gins and she falls out and she bumps into things and she has no idea that she's causing chaos. So there you go. And that gives you a taste, actually, of me, as well as... <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, so in 2012, Righty started dimpling. Okay. And so I went to uh, the local hospital, not my lovely little hospital, but another one, and they checked it out, and they said, oh, it's just a failing lymph node. And they didn't do a biopsy or anything else. And I've had... Um, mammograms ever since and nothing has shown up but in the last before I was diagnosed in the last year righty started shrinking and I didn't know whether that was a sign or not or whether lefty was growing and so it was sort of a bit Alice in Wonderland I didn't know which one was drinking which one was eating and all that sort of thing um and then um I found the lump in Lefty and uh, that was um, gosh I went to my GP about that on the 29th of September and she was very good and she said no you're right to come and she was concerned about both Lefty and Righty and so on the 5th of October I went to my lovely little hospital um, local hospital and um, really uh, they have their own specialist breast suite, like a lot of hospitals. And so I had a mammogram and an ultrasound and I had a prodigal poke and the diagnosis was made. But the most interesting thing, sorry, I'm going to go off. I, I do tangent. Um, the most interesting thing was when I was having the second ultrasound and I was allowed to see what was going on because during the first ultrasound, they wouldn't let me have a look, which I found infuriating. Um, the second ultrasound, when the consultant radiologist turned up, who, who was a dear, I said, please can you turn it so that I can have a look? And so as he was moving the thing over me, I saw my, my tumours and lefties. It was like watching a 1950s B-movie. You know, 
lost in space or something like that. And this asteroid came zooming into view and then twirling and whirling and zooming out again. And, and I said, that's it, is it? And he said, yes, that's that one. He said, that's the easy one. And then we went to Wrighty and there were lots of them. And because I pretty much every lymph node in Wrighty was cancerous. So he was trying to find what the original, where the original tumours were and then moving up and down. And he must have got very, he was very sweet because I said, is that, is that one? Is that a lymph node? And he said, no, that's not a lymph node. Okay, that's a lymph node though. Yes, that is a lymph node. Is that a healthy lymph node? No. <laughs> he, he was so sweet. And he put up with all, with all my questions. And then when the time came for the biopsies, because there were going to be loads of those, um, and they were injecting me with this stuff. And he said, you're very calm. And we've been joking and bouncing around. And I said, well, how, how are other people? And he said, well, they get terribly upset. And, and the nurse who was with me, supposed to be holding my hand, but it was waving around because I was too busy talking. Um, just, just said, we have people screaming, wailing, shouting. And I thought, well, that doesn't help anybody. And it certainly doesn't help the medics and they're trying to do their stuff. Um, it, it, in fact, they were more, they were terribly concerned that I, like you, that I turned up on my own because you're supposed to have a friend or another half with you. Well, I didn't have another half and I sure as hell wasn't going to have a friend getting bored. So I just went on my own. It, it was fine. And it was one of the most interesting bits in the whole, whole process, really. Um, and then I got the official confirmation. That was difficult because I had, because writing was so complicated. Um, I had two tumors in writing, but then all the, there was a lot of mess. And so although there were two separate tumors, there were also um, lymph nodes that were a mix of the tumors as well. So they were trying to sort out and that took a long time. So I wasn't properly, properly diagnosed with exactly what everything was until the end of November. Thank you. That's a long time to wait to have a full diagnosis then. Uh, well, I like to be different. <laughs> I am unusual. Um, and so the first stop didn't happen until December. Um, mainly because it was going to be complex because it was bilateral and um, they, it was going to be longer and I wasn't allowed to have immediate reconstruction because of the radiotherapy and all that sort of stuff. So Lefty um, had a lumpectomy and a reshape and Righty, Lefty looks very sweet. Um, I have a turquoise blue nipple and a scar that looks like a lollipop. So basically I've got a turquoise tutti fruity lollipop sort of superimposed on what remains of Lefty and Righty, the um, scar, it's as if Jaws had had all his teeth taken out. And so he's sitting there with his teeth, very, his mouth very tightly closed and just sliding all the way across, across Righty. It's, it's, it's not the most glorious of sights, but you know, he's not going to cause any more trouble. <laughs> He is what he is, and, that, and, exactly. that's, and that's absolutely perfect. 
I just adore your the, the way you talk about about the whole process, Peggy, and the the calmness about how you you were with the uh, the, the, the consultants and, and, and all of those. Um, and very reminiscent of how I felt about the whole process myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 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 yet, uh, the calmness isn't because of the um, the actual diagnosis. The calmness is actually something that runs through your DNA. Oh, uh, I think. And, and and it's how you are as a person is what. <laughs> I have usually. I'm able to um, stay in control of things. Um, I learned a lot. I'm going to go back a few more years. I'm sorry, Maureen. You dip in and out as to how, how, whatever seems most appropriate. For you. <laughs> um, I learned a lot when I left um, Voldemort, my ex, who um, I had to report to the police and things were very, very grim. And... I learned a lot about how to deal with anxiety because my anxious, I was, it was situational anxiety, but very, very high and things were very grim. And I got some tremendous help um, from the head of mental health services in Oxfordshire at the time. And Consequently, I was able for most of the time since then, I've been able to, I've never been an anxious person. I wasn't anxious before what happened with Voldemort. And then I spent two years in a tears, which is perfectly understandable when you think back. Um, so, and also cancer runs through my family like wildfire. My father had it and um, he had multiple myeloma. But he went on a trial, he was given six months, and he lasted five years. And he, he, he and I are quite similar in, in the way we deal with stuff. So I, you know, I wasn't particularly good at being the good daughter, and I may come back to that later. But um, he, he and I understood how our minds worked. And I think one of the things about dealing with this is knowing yourself knowing who you really really are and if you don't know before it starts by gum you're going to know much more about yourself I mean, i'm only halfway through and i've already learned a tremendous amount about who i am i thought that i was unfazable before this began. And certainly as far as the cancer and its treatment is concerned, yeah, totally. Even at the worst, you know, in fact, I had no idea that I was going through the, 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 the effect that um, the chemotherapy was having on me was unusual because no one had said, if you can't stand for more than one and a half minutes without fainting, that means you're really ill and you need to phone us. So I just thought, oh, okay, I have to sit down after one and a half minutes. Um, and I had chairs strategically placed around the house because I treated it a bit like an experiment. So, you, it, but if somebody had said to me, this, this, if this, 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 and this happens, you need to phone us and you, you need to, I, I would have... 
I might have been a bit more worried. Um, but as far as dealing with everything, a history of cancer in my family means that cancer is not scary. It's just a thing. And it has a small C, not a big fat round, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a small clever cat instead of a capital clever cat. This yeah. That caused problems for me was other people's reactions. That, that, that's a pivotal point, I think. Um, and and for, from my experience, it was more about managing those around me mm. than actually having to manage myself. Yes, absolutely. Um, which, which is what you've just been, been kind of sharing so eloquently, Peggy, around um, the fact that it, it, it's knowing, knowing who you are and how you are in the world. Knowing mm. yourself is pivotal in all of this, I think. And I'm being okay with it. Yeah, uh, um, I think in my reactions to other people, I was triggered sometimes. Um, my biggest trigger was if someone said that they, they, they would do something or they wanted to help or they wanted to be there. But because of things that were going on in their lives, they weren't able to. And I found that initially... I would say in the months between my diagnosis and Christmas, I found that difficult. Yeah. I found that very, very difficult. And I, I reacted quite negatively, um, not with everyone, probably only with those that I cared about the most, mm. um, which is always a thing. And I always get cross when other people do it. And I found myself sliding into this and and it was only after I'd had I would say a few weeks after my first operation that I realized that it was nobody's fault but mine and the way I was reacting was a reaction and it had nothing to do with those four people yeah. they, they had their own lives and everything that they were doing was important to them. And I was allowing myself to be swept up in a little whirlwind um, that actually had nothing to do with the way things really were. It had nothing to do with um, uh, absolute truth, if that's the way you want to call it. And, um, or one wants to call it, um, that these were the facts and I was, I was making irrational leaps and bumps and instead of giving myself, um, to use a really bad analogy, instead of giving myself, instead of being a really smooth ski jumper, mm -hmm. I had turned into Eddie the Eagle <laughs> and although I really, really wanted to do the good stuff I wasn't and I was normally really good at the good stuff and most of my mind had been taken up with dealing with the cancer only I hadn't known it I had allowed the externals the periphery the things on the periphery I had allowed myself to be distracted by that 
in a negative way in order to prevent myself from accepting, although I had accepted it, but in order to allow myself properly just to sit down. I didn't want to sit down. I didn't want to accept that I had no control over what was going on. The medics were doing the stuff. My body was something that they were dealing with. And the, the I, me, I, I, my body mix, whatever we care to call it, um, the incarnational aspect of who we are, to get a bit Christian about it, I am a theologian, these things do pop in. Um, that I was not prepared to withhold. I was not prepared to let go of that. I refused to allow other people control over my body. And then I realized that I had to. When my lovely surgeon came back to me after the first operation and said, well, you told us that we couldn't take anything that hadn't shown up on the CT scan. And you signed up off on that. And when I went in and I did an exploratory feel about, I found a lump under your collarbone. And I couldn't take it out because you hadn't signed up for that. And I suddenly realized that having that kind of control actually wasn't gonna help. I'm, I'm not a surgeon. I'm not an oncologist. I don't know. So, and he was so upset because the hospital wouldn't let him go back in that evening because it would look as like a complication from a first operation. And so he couldn't go back in and do what he wanted to do. That's crazy. So we had to wait another month, which put off the chemotherapy so that he could then go back in and take out some more. And so I, I had to accept then that everything that had gone on in the couple of months before that hadn't helped me hadn't necessarily helped those around me. My emotional reaction to other people's emotions definitely hadn't been helpful in the least. And my desire for autonomy wasn't going to help either. And so what may have appeared in the way I'm describing it uh, as a big jumble, suddenly just settled as if you shake um, a tangle of beads or something and everything just drops into place. And I realized that no, who I am is more important and the fundamental truth of who I am and the way I behave and the way I feel and the way I think when I can is more important than reacting in any way to other people's problems, sources, thoughts, findings, because that doesn't help anyone. And that was how I had been before I found out about Voldemort and reported him to the police. But in the intervening seven years, I had forgotten how to do that. So for me, having cancer has actually 
reasserted, if that makes sense, who I really am. It hasn't necessarily helped other people, <laughs> it's sort of helped me. Just, am I making sense? Absolute perfect sense, Peggy. And I am so delighted that you shared that because I think in, in all of this, in all of this, um, and in, in the world that I, that I work with clients, it, it, it is about understanding that um, whether we get tangled up by other people's thinking, thoughts, actions, reactions, A, that's human, so welcome to the human race. <laughs> um, but having an understanding that you getting tangled up with it is, was never going to change anything, that's pivotal, really pivotal. And I hope people are... I hope people really listen just to that piece. And there'll be lots of other pieces in this uh, this podcast, I'm sure. But that piece in particular is pivotal because I think once you have that understanding that no thing and no one outside of you actually can impact you, that's, that's when life changes. And that's what changes for people like me who share this understanding and for others who have no idea what this understanding is. But, it, but when you have a glimpse of it, a glimmer of it, that's when life changes. And that's that's what I see in what, what you've shared here so far. And also what I see with your sharing on Facebook and, and, and elsewhere. It, com it comes through in, in such glorious technicolor. <laughs> That you've got a handle on this thing we call life, even <laughs> with everything that's going on for you. So I, I'm so delighted you shared that. But what you also pointed to was, um, in a way, it when I call it resilience, you, you, you refer to it as kind of just uh, settling down. I heard someone on a, on a completely different topic, but it, but the, what they said was. I, want, I, I invite you to come all the way in and sit all the way down. Mm. That's exactly it. I think if we realise that we need... <laughs> I used to go riding when I was a kid. If, if we realise that we need a firm seat, but it can't be too firm. So, and I think for the last seven years since leaving Voldemort and that really was a terrible shock. Um, uh, I had been giving myself far too firm a seat. I had been bouncing along in the third class carriages, Victorian third class carriages on a very dodgy little railway. Um, and I suddenly realized that yes, you can have a firm seat, but you're allowed a cushion on top of it. And if you only have a firm seat, you're going to spend your whole life dealing with the bruises from the wooden slats. Yeah. Whereas if you give yourself a little cushion, or even a big cushion if you need one, um, then those slats are going to still be there, but they're not going to kill you in the process. And you can move up using Maslow's triangle. You can move up from the desperate fundamental measures and, and learn and become the things that really, once you've, once you've got over the basics, you can be really you. And I have to say that in the first year after leaving 
Voldemort, I was desperately struggling financially, emotionally, all those things. So I know about the firm slats. But the problem was that as I got further away from the firm slats, I was still insisting on living on a very, very hard, uncomfortable seat and treating myself that way. And so it took having one and a half boobs chopped off for me to realise that actually that didn't matter anymore. But also that it never mattered. Yeah, but I didn't know that at the time. No, I, I get that. I get and that. It's, it, but I agree with you wholeheartedly. One of my most important lessons was when I was 16. And um, I, my, my father was an amazing chap. And um, we were having a conversation and I just said to him, how do you deal with the bad stuff, Dad? And he said, you need to have an element of cold-bloodedness about you. A sang-froid. He said, you can get hot-blooded by all means. Get hot-blooded, get emotional. He said, but if you cannot cool back down in order to see the facts, then you cannot exist sensibly. Oh, he was great. I learned a lot from him. Um, and I was really lucky because I could play the piano and playing the piano dealt with a lot, still does, um, of all the bad stuff. Um, and allowed me, it gave me a breathing space um, to allow everything else to work itself out subconsciously without me actually having to force my mind around difficult things. And I think it must be very difficult for people who don't have that kind of an artistic outlet or maybe aren't very good at running or jogging or, or all the physical stuff that I'm really rubbish at. Um, I don't, it must be very difficult for them because they don't have an automatic process. To, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, and so, and what, what I hear you pointing to uh, is... What I call so I, in 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 my world, I I I um, you were talking about the hot you can have the, the emotion and the hot bloodedness, but it's also having uh, or giving yourself that space for the emotion to die, mm -hmm. the uh, life a little bit more clearly. So and the the analogy that I use, which is which was given to me by one of my mentors, a chap called Jamie Smart, lovely bloke. Um, and that he used a, a, a it was a, a ball, it was a almost like a, a, a snow globe, but it was full of glitter. Okay. And when you get in a, into a heightened emotional state, which people do around cancer, they do around any uh, major diagnosis or any life transformational kind of situation, and it's like you're shaking the glitter ball. Mm -hmm. that emotions are tumbling and rolling around and you can't see the wood for the trees so to speak mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then you stop the shaking the glitter or the snow falls to the bottom and then you can see through yes the water and that's for me what you've just been explaining in, mm. in your in your description of uh so for you the, the piano is, is a way to kind of let all that through yes for other people it's um i i i used to uh, work with a, a young man and his way of dealing with life's crises was to go for an eight mile run well I couldn't conceive of doing that <laughs> no. 
Um, for him, that was his what it was his mechanism. Why why would? But a caveat on and of that is that um, on the days when when playing the piano or going for the run or doing whatever it is that that anybody out there has found, they think they found the solution is that when on the days that your thinking goes a bit off piste and the solution that you have doesn't work, don't worry about it. <clears throat> it's just giving yourself an opening to look at alternative solutions. Absolutely. That's where the cushion on the seat comes in. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm loving I'm liking the sound of this cushion. <laughs> I've, got, I've got in mind a purple velvet cushion. Yes. Then that's me, you know. No, no, no. My cushion is, is perhaps a little more maroon than velvet, but it definitely has gold tassels. Oh, I like the sound of this cushion. <laughs> <laughs> fabulous, fabulous. So... What strikes me with all of the, the, the stuff that you've been sharing this morning, Peggy, is that when, you, when you're at peace with who you are, when you live in the moment and from that space of being, without, being okay with who you are and where you're at, mm. gives you the greatest peace for accepting what's currently going on and for what may come after whatever is going on now. Because obviously at the moment, you, you've, you've had a, a, a quite a, an aggressive reaction to the chemo, <laughs> what you put it politely. Um, you've had all sorts of other things going on. Um, you're now getting ready to start the radiotherapy and you've now had your three NHS tattoos or your body art provided. Oh, I had more than three, my darling. Oh, did you? Oh, you're very oh. lucky. How many did you have? Uh, let me, I've got, I've got to pitch them in my head now. Uh, one. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Wow! I only got three. I feel changed. Well, uh, how, it's, it, you only had one boobage area. I, I absolutely. This is true. <laughs> this is very true. However, you can still say that you have body art provided by the NHS. Absolutely, and one day I hope to have a tummy tuck provided by the NHS as well. Oh, well, but, yeah. Let me try <laughs> that one too. Um, so you're about to start your. Um, your sessions of radiotherapy. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say, how do you feel about that? But actually, I, I can see on your face how you feel about that. You know, this is this is like piece of cake, Joe. I, I wouldn't put it quite like that. I have absolutely. Um, uh, what I find interesting is that when they talk to you about it and they talk about the side effects and the, uh, when I was starting with chemo, they talked about the side effects and they said, you may have this, you may have that, but not everybody has everything. <coughs> uh, surprisingly enough, I had pretty much everything, including the sore teeth from the cyclophosphamide. So, yes, still dealing with that one. Um, so, when they say, oh, you may have this, and you may have that, I am preparing for everything to do with the radiotherapy. Um, I also will be finding out on Monday whether my heart is strong enough for me to have Herceptin. And again, they give you a long list of things that may happen with Herceptin. So, I'm probably going to have all of them, but hey, if it all gets too much, my oncologist will tell me to stop. And if it doesn't, I, I suspect 
I suspect that this time round, I shall ask for the levels of acceptable um, side effects so that I know just how ill I'm supposed to be or I ask for help. And and, and I think having gone through the the, the more extreme reactions and and, and complications of chemo, that has uh, uh, given you a level of a deeper understanding as to how you shouldn't just accept things. I think the problem is you read the instructions in inverted commas. It's, it's like putting up an Ikea bookshelf. I do like my metaphors and my similes. Um, you read the instructions and then it doesn't quite work and you're convinced that it's because you've got it wrong. Um, when in fact there's something missing or the page has got missing from the instruction manual. Um, the is in my mind to my mind a page missing in the instruction manual that actually grades how bad reactions should be because for stubborn old boilers like me um you're just going to keep on going um and you just you just say to yourself well okay this is really bad but it's not as bad as such and such and and i can handle it and yeah, I think, am I, am I okay with the radiotherapy? I am because I've prepared myself for it in the same way as I had prepared myself for chemo. And I think, well, when you've had the worst of something, and I had the worst with chemo and I had the worst emotionally post-Voldemort pretty much. I didn't need to be committed, thank goodness, but it, it was very, 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 the anxiety levels were extraordinary. Um, I think you know how much you can deal with and you, you prepare yourself and you stiffen your spine and there was one time during the chemo where I actually thought my spine is so solid and so stiff that I will never be able to bend again. I was so concerned that I was, that the strength that I was pouring into myself was never going to be able to be let go. And, but of course it is. But during that time, which was during the worst, the last session, I just thought, how am I, every particle of myself was focused on getting through the next second or the next 30 seconds or the next minute. And I didn't know how I was going to release that kind of control. But once we move out of that desperate survival stage, then we can relax the spine. But we don't know it at the time. And so coming back, sorry, I've gone away. Coming back to um, uh, being relaxed, being calm, all those things. Yes. But again, we we have to know where our fixed point is where our where our pole star is if you like yeah 
And once we know or we remind ourselves, in my case, of where it is, then we can um, go off at little tangents as far away as we like, but we know that we can come back to it. And it, 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 it all boils down to just what you and I have been saying, that we have to know each other, know ourselves rather. And if we don't know ourselves before this starts, we will know ourselves by the time it finishes. Yeah. That, is, that is the crucial point here, Peggy, and a delightful place to kind of bring this conversation to us. <laughs> absolute delight talking with you this morning and uh, I hope my listeners uh, will take away the various and many spurs <laughs> and, and such likes and, and that uh, you've been sharing this morning so um, we may ask you back if you would be delighted to do so um, <laughs> once the, your, your, your treatment has gone uh, further into the, um, the, the lighter phases shall we say so thank you thank you again for this morning um, thank you if um, anybody wants to contact you how, how best should they do that um, the easiest thing probably is to find me on Facebook I'm pretty locked down um, because of what happened with Voldemort um, but uh, I'm Peggy Buchanan on Facebook and there's a tartan circle thing um, so if anyone wants to find me, they can do that that way and ask to be my friend on mm -hmm. Facebook. And obviously they can always get in touch with you and you can put them in touch with me or whatever. Um, if someone is, is really desperate. Um, when I was, I, I've made some friends that way by doing stuff um, about what happened with Voldemort on the radio and things. So I'm open to all that. It's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not a nasty, dangerous person, although all the Wonder Woman things and bits and bobs might sweep people otherwise. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I forgot to mention Wonder Woman. I, I have actually been talking to Wonder Woman this morning. <laughs> also known as Peggy Buchanan. Um, so thank you again, Peggy. It's been a, an absolute delight this morning. Um, for... Uh, the next episode, it'll be coming up shortly. But if anybody actually wants to have a conversation with me, um, you can now uh, go to a new link that I have, which is moreinyourconversation.com. And uh, I'll be delighted to um, spend some time with you as well. So thank you again for listening today. And thank you for, for, for Peggy for being so gracious this morning. And I will be in touch very soon. <laughs>